look at chapter chapter four. Uh, we're going to do chapters four, five, and six, Magician's Nephew. Just a little review. Um, Magician's Nephew is the sixth book that got published. Uh, he actually was writing on it some when he wrote uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The Magician's Nephew is the prequel that tells you where Narnia comes from. Uh, and it not only tells you where Narnia comes from in, in a Genesis-type way, you'll actually see Aslan create Narnia later in the book, but the real issue that, that, that Lewis wants you to see is how evil entered Narnia. Uh, so in the, in the Magician's Nephew, it's, it's an amazing picture, both of what evil is and how evil destroys a culture. Uh, and you saw that with Charn and the deplorable word. Um, and that's why also when you think about the examples of evil and how evil works, how seductive evil is, how, how, how evil takes control of people's mindsets and ways of thinking, uh, you, you have your two um, beautiful, that's probably not the right word, profound pictures of evil printed painted for you in this book with with Uncle Andrew, who is the evil magician, uh, uh, to Diggory, the young kid. And you also have um, Jadis, the witch. And Jadis is like Andrew on steroids. But what you see with Andrew and Jadis, you see what evil is, how evil operates, how evil seduces people, how evil, evil seduces a culture. And um, you, you'll, you, throughout the book, you'll be comparing um, Andrew and Jadis with Polly and Diggory, the, the kids, the kids that are in, uh, in the book. Uh, they just kind of know right from wrong. Um, they just believe there is such a thing as right and wrong. And that is an advancement over the sophistication of Uncle Andrew and particularly Queen Jadis. Um, so with that being said, uh, let's jump back in the book. You remember last week, uh, Diggory's moved to London. His mother's sick. Um, his mother's sick. His father's uh, serving the empire in India. Uh, the, the book is set in the Edwardian age. Think Downton Abbey. There, it's set in the Edwardian age, the first decade or so of the 20th century. So um, uh, Diggory is in... Um, there in London, he meets Polly, and they become friends, and and they go exploring. They go through the attics of the row houses, and they end up in Uncle Andrew's study. Uncle Andrew's the mad scientist, and of course, um, Diggory is living with Andrew, Andrew's sister Letty, and they are siblings to Andrew's to, to Diggory's mother. Well, they end up in um, uh, Andrew's study. Andrew then um, gets um, Polly sent to another world through use of the outer ring, and, um, but doesn't give her the green ring to come back. So Diggory has to go, take the outer ring, go find um, Polly, and take green rings so they can come back. So they go, they end up in the wood, the wood between the worlds, a great place, but it's a place from which you can go to different worlds. And where we ended last week was um, they decided to go exploring some other worlds. 
and curiosity can be good. Curiosity can be deadly. Um, and you're going to see both in the magician's nephew. So they decide to go exploring another world, and they um, jump in the pond. They jump in the pond there in the, the wood between the worlds, that magical place, and they end up in, they end up in Charn. And um, you need to pay close attention to Charn and the deplorable world word, because that's where you're going to see um, what what Jadis, the White Witch, the Evil Queen, did to the to the world of Charn. And then, of course, uh, she will get transported back. Uh, you'll see in a little bit. She'll get transported back um, to England. And, you know, and it's not good when she is transported back to England. That's further in the story, though. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, uh, and again, you notice how he does this. At the end of chapter 3, they jumped. They jumped in the pond. You know the pond's going to take them somewhere. So at the beginning of chapter 4, you're going to find where they end up. And you notice the chapter is entitled what? The Bell and the Hammer. Uh, significant. Pay attention to this bell and this hammer. Anyway, they end up in an interesting place called Charn. It is obviously in ruins. It has obviously been destroyed. There's no life. There is um, a tired, a tired sun shining on the ruins of Charn. Uh, it's sort of a sterile place. Uh, again, no life, no life, or something that something has destroyed the life. No life, but the buildings are in ruin. Well, uh, Diggory and um, Polly decide to explore, and you get a, an amazing picture painted of the world of Charn. Uh, they're wandering through the world of Charn on page 30, on page 46. You see one of Pauline Bain's um, sketches of what Charn looks like. You see, it's, it, you can tell it used to be a majestic place. It used to be a place of great culture, great civilization, but it's in ruins now. And, you know, the inquiring mind should be wondering why it, is it in ruins now. But here they're walking through this uh, strange world of Charn that they have found themselves in. It feels cold and dead and empty, and it's, it's silent. But um, the chapter makes the point it's not it's not the kind of good silence that they experienced in the wood between the worlds. It's a different kind of silence. It's a foreboding silence. Uh, when they first get there, they both hold hands for a while because they're afraid. There's something fearful about Charn. Um, then you notice they wander around on page uh, 49. You see another uh, sketching by Pauline Baines. If you don't know what that is, that sculpture there that used to flow with water, but there's no water flowing in Charn now. Uh, you see Polly and Diggory looking at that sculpture. By the way, do you know what that is? The name of that? It's a griffin. That's a griffin, uh, which comes from medieval uh, literature. It, it came from Greek mythology. Uh, you don't need to worry about a griffin. Griffins historically guarded what used guarded priceless things. Again, tells you something about the majesty of Charn. Um, I, I like depictions of griffins um, because I married one. My 
wife was a griffin. That was her maiden name. I think it offended the family when I explained to them that's what they are right there. That's a griffin. Uh, that's where the word griffin, the name comes from. Anyway, there's a griffin. You see them looking at it, but again, no water's flowing through it. No water's flowing through it, but you get the impression Charn used to be a great place of culture and civilization. Uh, but something happened. Uh, you, you, they make their way into the Hall of Images. And you see those images, again, the sketching of it on page 51, Pauline Baines. Now, what you need to notice, hope you noticed, they're royalty. They are like wax figures. They're not alive at this point. They're like wax figures. They're royalty. They're, they are clothed in royal garb. You notice the crowns. So these were rulers. Somehow um, their clothing, their signs of royalty hasn't been um, corrupted. But what I want you to really notice on page 52, as they walked by these images of the rulers, the first ones looked nice. Then they got to some that began looking proper. They needed to mind their, they felt like they needed to mind their P's and Q's in front of the ones that looked proper. And then if you kept reading and paid attention, they started looking cruel, cruel, evil, and they became crueler, is how C.S. Lewis says it. You see that, um, that um, mean, mad look on their face. And then you see at the end of this series of waxed figures of, previous rulers, the last ones looked despairing, uh, fearful, despairing, as if they had done some dreadful things, and some dreadful things had been done to them. There's your history of Charn. There's your history of Charn. You see how the rulers progressed from being good rulers to evil rulers. But then there's something on the other side of evil rulers. There's the despairing rulers. Somehow the evil brought something to Charn that they had not wished for. Somehow the evil brought something to this civilization um, that required a price that they wished they didn't have to pay. Again, I hope C.S. Lewis, as, as adults reading this book, he's hoping you're connecting some dots. He is, this book was published in 1955. I was not around in 1955. Some of you were. That was the Cold War. You know what was happening. Um, you know the dangers, the fears. Um, the 20th century had been the worst century, was, had, still is, the worst century in human history, World War I, World War II. Um, the rise of totalitarian states. Uh, the, the glories of European civilization almost being destroyed. And again, C.S. Lewis is writing this. And the adults who's reading this to their children in the 1950s, they, 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 they know what they've been living through. And it's 1955, and, you know, they're, they're all doing um, those um, drills where they had to get under their tables in their school school rooms in case of an atomic attack and all that stuff. Uh, some of you remember that. I was not around, but I've, I've heard about it and I've seen documentaries 
Um, you know, I was even too, I was even too young for the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I've watched documentaries because I like history. But um, so you you know the period into which C.S. Lewis is speaking, and he's just painted you a picture of Charn, nice, good, benevolent rulers. Then they became more and more cruel. Then they um, became dis- they became despairing because they were watching their society crumble around them. By the way, again, you hear me talk about, you know, what do they teach in these schools these days? I had to study Plato. I had to study Aristotle. If you read Plato, and they predate Christianity, but Christianity agreed with them. Uh, if you read Plato in the Republic, the best ruler in Plato's mind in the Republic, and you can cogitate on this, the best ruler of a people, of a democracy, because that was Plato's term, that's where it came from, the best ruler is a benevolent monarch. Someone who's not, a tied, to, who's not tied to the opinions of the people, someone who's not tied to the votes of the people, someone who is not tied to the, the um, demands of the majority, but they're benevolent. They're good, like the early rulers you see in Charn. That was Plato's uh, picture of the best ruler for democracies, someone that didn't try to accommodate the crowds, didn't have to accommodate the crowds, but they were good. They had a strong moral compass. They knew the difference between right and wrong. Anyway, that's Plato. Uh, who C.S. Lewis had a lot of um, regard for. Anyway, you see how what has led to the to the decline of Charn. Well, here comes a picture of, of human nature. They find here in the Hall of Images, they find a um, a pedestal, and on the pedestal they find a golden bell, and on the golden bell they find language. At first, they can't read the language. I don't know what the language is in Charn, but they can't read the language. But you notice as they look at it, they begin to be able to read it. There's something about evil. We all know how to translate it into our world. There's something universal. We all know how to translate it into our world. So the longer they look at the poem, the inscription on the pedestal underneath the veil, they begin to be able to read it. And you, you see the poem on page 54. Make your choice, adventurous stranger, strike the bell and, and bide the danger, or wonder till it drives you mad what would have followed if you had. You know, it's sort of like telling a child you can eat anything in the kitchen except that. And what's the child going to want? That. That's human nature. Paul talks about that, by the way, in, in the book of Romans. That's a picture of human sinfulness. The law, when Paul says the law makes you sin, sometimes I never understood that till I had children. <laughs> then I understood the Apostle Paul where he said the law makes us sin. The law can't save us from sin. The law makes us sin. That's why I just tell the child the law is you can't eat that. And what, it just will kill the child. They have to have it. They don't want anything else but what you told them not to have. So here's a picture. You know, again, make your choice. Adventure, stranger, strike the bell and bide the danger. Or wonder till it drives you mad what would have followed if you had. Polly's smarter. 
She does not want to hit the bell. Diggory, and I mentioned to you last week, there's going to be two major moral crises for Diggory. This is the first one. He flunks. There's going to be another one later that he struggles but passes. He flunks this one. He's going to grab that hammer and he's going to hit that bell. And he's going to do it um, while Polly's fighting him not to do it. He's going to hit the bell. Um, and it's this loud, increasingly louder gong, resounding of the bell. And then again in C.S. Lewis's style, look at how this chapter ends. The, the bell sort of fades away. There's evidence of some more crumbling because of the power of the bell. And then the last, cha- last couple sentences of the chapter, well, it's, over, it's all over anyway, said Diggory. And both thought it was, but they had never been more mistaken in their lives. So again, that's the way C.S. Lewis ends his chapters. Yeah, it's not over. Ringing the bell was not a good idea. And that's the cliffhanger. Turn the page. And you're going to find why he should not have rung the bell. Because when he looked at those, that row of rulers, wax images... They got worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, at the end, they, they realized they had done something wrong. And, of course, in that progression or digression, the worst one would have been the last one. And she was beautiful, but there was something strikingly evil about her. She was big, tall, beautiful, strikingly evil. The last ruler of Charn. Well, when he struck the bell, guess what happens? She's the one that comes alive. She's the one that comes alive. Again, you see a sketch of her on page 59. You see her, how tall she is. She was the final ruler of Charn when Charn was destroyed. Over there to the left, you see those other images of all the other rulers. So uh, you get introduced to this queen, this white witch. You remember her from... Uh, white line, the witch and wardrobe. You get introduced to her here. Um, she out, you see how tall she is. You see the size of the children. You see the pedestal with the bell in front of Diggory. So you're going to get introduced to Jadis and the deplorable word here. Um, they start realizing that she is not a nice person as she's showing them around. She's showing them a place like dungeon and torture chambers, and she's making reference to where uh, her great-grandfather had um, invited 700 nobles to a feast in the palace and then had all of them slaughtered. Um, So they're they're making their way through um, this area. Um, They get to the, um, the, the doors, the doors into the palace. You see them on page 63, and she just uh, waves her hand. She um, is full of magic and power. You need to understand both Andrew and Jadis as two people whose primary problem, primary channel to evil is their lust for power, their lust to control. So um, she has power. She has great magic. So she just waves her hand, and the doors open. The doors open. 
So they walk outside. And what I want to focus on for a few minutes is how Jadis describes Charn. They're looking at the desolated Charn. Look on page uh, 65. Uh, she's, she's showing them what used to be a glorious civilization. Um, the paragraph that starts, Look well on that which no eyes will ever see again, said the queen. Such was Charn, that great city, the city of the king of kings, the wonder of the world, perhaps of all worlds. Does your uncle rule any city as great as this boy? I mean, she knows that they got there through the, through the magic of, of Diggory's uncle. But there's... Yeah, there's a lot of difference between, you'll learn, between Andrew and Jadis. Um, he's just a um, low-level magician. His evil is not as powerful as Jadis's. But she's assuming he has to be pretty powerful because he's got these, he sent these kids on this travel to Charn. Anyway, no, says Diggory. He was going to explain that Uncle Andrew didn't rule any cities. That's an understatement. But the queen went on. It is silent now, but I have stood here when the whole air was full of the noises of charm, the trampling of feet, the creaking of wheels, the cracking of the whips, and the groaning of slaves, the thunder of chariots, and the sacrificial drums, human beings being sacrificed, sacrificial drums beating in the temples. I have stood here, but that was near the end, when the roar of battle went up from every street, and the river of Charn, which is now dust, used to be a river in Charn, the river of Charn ran red with blood. She paused and added, all in one moment, one woman, one woman blotted it out forever. Now again, before you turn the page, inquiring minds should ask, which woman? And I want you to see um, Jadis' interpretation of who is responsible. This feels so contemporary. If you're not connecting the dots, get your neighbor to explain it to you afterwards. <laughs> anyway, all in one moment, one woman blotted it out forever. Who, said Digger in a faint voice, but he had already guessed the answer. Um, yeah, he knows the answer, but still I want you to watch how, how Jadis is going to explain it. I, said the queen, I, Jadis, the last queen, but the queen of the world. So she destroyed it, but don't you notice what she does with this responsibility? You would think destroying a culture would make you sad. Not a good idea to destroy a whole culture and everybody being dead but you, and now you're brought back to life and you're still proud that you destroyed that culture. Again, something about human nature being presented here. Anyway, the two children stood silent, shivering in the cold wind. Look at the next sentence. It was my sister's fault. Can you imagine a culture filled with people where they just refuse to take responsibility for what they do? <laughs> it's um, their mothers, their fathers, their heritage, their education, the government, their employers. Somebody else is responsible. You might have been the one that destroyed the world, but somebody else is responsible. It was my sister's fault, said the queen. She drove me to it. May the curse of all the powers rest upon her forever. At any moment, I was ready to make peace. Yeah, can you imagine what kind of 
peace Jadis would have wanted. Yes, and to spare her life too. If only she would yield me the throne. Um, yeah, um, it was, it was um, Emperor Augustus Caesar that someone wrote about and said he made a desert and called it peace. Yeah, I mean, she would have made peace if her sister would have yielded completely to her. Um, but, but, of course, the sister would not. Her pride, now again, Jadis is not talking about herself right here. Jadis is talking about her sister. Her pride has destroyed the whole world. Well, we know whose pride has destroyed the whole world, Jadis's pride. But I'm sure her sister was a close second. Even after the war had begun, there was a solemn promise that neither side would use magic. Keep in mind when he's writing. But when she broke her promise, what could I do? Fool, as if she did not know that I had more magic than she, she even knew that I had the secret of the deplorable word. Did she think she was always a weakling that I would not use it? What was it, said Diggory? That was the secret of secrets. You know, enlightenment, secret knowledge that the elite have. That was the secret of secrets, said the Queen Jadis. It had long been known to the great kings of our race that there was a word which, if spoken with the proper ceremonies, would destroy all living things except the one who spoke it. Jadis is the one who spoke it. Um, but the ancient kings were weak and soft-hearted and bound themselves and, and all who should come after them with great oaths never even to seek after the knowledge of the word. Well, I think they were pretty smart to say we're not going to use that word. We're not going to use that power. But you see how Jadis is defining her predecessors. They were weak. They, they, they had the secret for centuries, the secret of the deplorable word. But all those earlier weak, again, think about the images of the monarchs in the Hall of um, Images. They were nice, then they were proper, then they were cruel, and then they were despairing. Yeah, the early ones, they all knew about the, the, the deplorable word, but they, they, they were weak enough, I would say smart enough, not to use it. But I learned it in a secret place, and I paid a terrible price to learn it. Uh, I don't know what the price was, but I, I, I suspect I had something to do with her selling her soul to the devil to get the knowledge. I did not use it until she, my sister, forced me to use it. That sounds so contemporary. It's not my fault. You made me do it. The devil made me do it. You pushed my button. You made me do it. Somebody made me do it. It wasn't me. I did not use it until she forced me to it. I fought, I fought to overcome her by every other means. I poured out the blood of my armies like water. And then at this point, Polly, who's the smarter, she's the female, obviously. She's the smarter one. <laughs> Polly just mutters, beast, at this point. The last great battle, said the queen, raged for three days here in Charn itself, for three days, I looked down upon it from this very spot. I did not use my power until the last of my soldiers had fallen, and the accursed woman, my sister, at the head of her rebels, they're rebels because they won't yield to Jadis, the rebels was halfway up those great stairs that lead up from the city to the terrace. 
Then I waited till we were so close that we could see one another's faces. She flashed her horrible, wicked eyes upon me and said, Victory. Yes, said I, victory, but not yours. Then I spoke the deplorable word. A moment later, I was the only living thing beneath the sun. Now, when the people read this to their children in 1955, they knew this was an allusion to the atomic bomb. You know, they knew that's what that was. At the end of the book, I pointed out there when we get there that he actually kind of, Aslan actually kind of says that to Diggory and Polly when they go back uh, to the beginning of the 20th century, that the century's going to be bad. Anyway, she speaks the deplorable word. She mashes the button. She does whatever it took. She speaks the deplorable word. A moment later, I was the only living thing beneath the sun. But the people, gasped Diggory. What people, boy? asked the queen. And think about our discussion last week about Andrew. You know, evil Andrew and very evil Jadis, people are just good to the extent they meet their purposes. People are just good to the extent they can be to the extent they can be used to accomplish what people like Andrew and Jadis want to accomplish. What people, my boy? Yeah, everybody's dead. What you know? And she doesn't even no remorse that she's done this. What people, boy? Said asked the queen. All the ordinary people said Polly, who'd never done you any harm, and the women and the children and the animals. Uh, remember, C.S. Lewis's love for animals. And women and children, too, by the way. But he loved animals. Um, all the ordinary people. Now, again, remember back last week. Part of what is going on here is uh, Andrew knows he's not an ordinary person. And the way that gets interpreted in his life is ordinary people don't have to abide by ordinary rules. Like good and bad. Uh, people who are above the ordinary people, good becomes what is good for them. Bad becomes what is bad for them. By the way, we call that a narcissist in our culture. Um, you know, where the only definition for good is as it impacts them, or the only definition of bad is how it impacts them. There's no objective good or bad separate from their wishes. That's a narcissist. That's why they can talk themselves into anything. Thank Adolf Hitler. They can talk themselves into anything. Because they redefine good and redefine bad as to that which is beneficial for them. Uh, but once you kind of put yourself above the ordinary people, you know, the laws, the, the normal rules, the conventions of society, they're for you peons, or as she calls them, minions. They're not for people like Andrew or Jadis. But here are these kids who just know simple right and wrong. They ask her, you know, what about all the people and animals that you killed. Don't you understand, said the queen, still speaking to Diggory. I was the queen. They were all my people. And says, let's put my in italics there. What else were they there for but to do my will? Again, he's watched the rise of totalitarian states. He's watched, uh, and, and again, uh, Mussolini was a totalitarian state on the right or conservative side of politics, um, and then uh, as was Hitler. 
and then um, uh, in, in the rise of the totalitarian state in, 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 in Russia, the Bolsheviks and then the communists, that was the rise of a totalitarian state on the left or the liberal side. This, this, this goes across, this is a human nature thing. Um, and he was watching the rise of totalitarian states and, and, and one of the core convictions of totalitarian states is you, you exist for the purpose of the state. You exist for the purpose of the state. Um, and she makes it very clear. Uh, what else were they there for but to do my will? It was rather hard luck on them, all the same. Hard luck, yeah, that's understatement, said, said Diggory. I had forgotten that you are only a common boy. How should you understand reasons of state? Yeah, how should normal people understand what needs to be done? by those who rule, even if it means speaking the deplorable word. You must learn, child, that what would be wrong for you or for any of the common people is not wrong in a great queen such as I. And Andrew thought the same thing about himself. The weight of the world is on our shoulders. We must be freed from all rules. Ours is a high and lonely destiny. Diggory suddenly remembered that Uncle Andrew had used exactly the same words. But they sounded grander when Queen Jada said them, perhaps because Uncle Andrew was not seven feet tall and dazzlingly beautiful. You know, when people read this to their children, I hope the adults are connecting the dots and getting a picture painted in their minds of evil, of human evil, how it starts, how it advances, how it destroys a culture. Again, if, if you want to not learn it in fantasy and literature, but want to just read what he says about it, you can read C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. And you can tell by that title, he's saying you head down this path, the result is going to be the abolition of man. Nobody will be left but Jadis. And, and, and he wrote that book... Well, he actually delivered three lectures in the university in England um, that became the abolition of man. He's responding to a textbook he saw in 1943, a textbook that was being used with students, a textbook that basically maybe didn't mean to, but a textbook that was teaching right and wrong. Everything's relative. Everything's subjective. You know, we don't know who gets to define anything. There's no grand lawgiver that defines things. So there's no grand lawgiver that gets to define reality. If there's no grand lawgiver that gets to define right and wrong. By the way, the Magna Carta was when the nobles got together and told King John he was underneath something. There was a grand lawgiver that's above all human rulers. But if you get rid of that grand lawgiver, what George Washington called providence, uh, what we call God, if you, if, or what Plato and Aristotle would have called the person, the mind of the universe that created moral law, that created natural law, if you get rid of that, that leaves a vacuum. And if you create a world with that vacuum, then it's just up to the most powerful and the loudest voice 
to tell you what those words mean, to tell you what's right, to tell you what's wrong, to tell you who's doing what should be done, and to tell you who's doing what should not be done. Jadis, in her mind, was completely right in what she did. Andrew, in making Polly vanish to another world with no hope of coming back home, was completely right in his mind. He had rationalized because he was above the common rules. Somehow they didn't apply to him or her. Um, yeah, you head down that path as a culture, charn, or as he says in his book, the abolition of man or the abolition of humanity um, is the result. Um, an acquaintance of mine who uh, teaches at Oxford and at Cambridge and at Houston Baptist Theological Seminary and at Hillsdale College, uh, who's a C.S. Lewis scholar from England, Michael Ward, uh, who sponsored the, the establishment of our C.S. Lewis Society in the Triad. He has actually written a commentary on um, the abolition of man. Uh, his commentary just came out last year. His commentary is entitled uh, The Abolition of Humanity if you want a more contemporary way of saying it. But, you know, we need to understand that there's never been a civilization ever that's been eternal. We have a lot of track records of great civilizations that were birthed, that grew, that became wonderful, that become great, and then they fail. Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Persian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the list goes on. You know, so any empire, any people, any civilization, any culture that thinks they are sort of eternal are, are, are deluding themselves. And what he's saying to you here is he's, he's pulling the best from history, Western civilization, Western literature to say, let me tell you how civilizations crumble. Let me tell you how it happens. Let me tell you, and it, and it all, civilizations crumble um, because of um, moral decay, basically. The, you know, uh, moral decay among the people, and then more importantly, moral decay among the leadership. Again, what's the best ruler? A benevolent monarch. I guess if you're in England, you'd say a good constitutional monarch. Um, but that's how, that's how cultures corrupt. You know, um, We've done a lot of work on the what 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 destroyed the Roman Empire. You know, the the consensus throughout history has been moral decay, loss of virtue. You know, in modern eras, we want to say maybe it was lead poisoning. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. You know, they they did sewer systems. They had running water. Maybe it was lead poisoning that led to the decay. Um, the best of Western civilization the best of philosophy, the best of history, can paint you the picture as to what leads to a, to a charn. Um, yeah, a culture can decay, 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 till somebody might hit the button. You know, because might makes right. You know, uh, uh, the modern world has been heavily influenced with Frederick Nietzsche, uh, who he, he, he talked about the Superman, the Uberman, the one who had the power, and, and he was in favor of that, and that's why the Nazis used his philosophy, uh, nihilism, to kind of create a worldview that would support that kind of thinking. Um, anyway, there's your picture of Jadis. There's your picture of Charn. Um, needless to say, the children aren't impressed. 
<laughs> you know, Jadis is impressed with herself, but the children are not impressed. So they decide to sneak back to their world. Now, when they try to sneak back to their world, they learn something about those magical rings. You don't have to be touching the green ring to come home or touch the uh, yellow ring to go to another world. You don't have to touch those rings. You just have to touch somebody who's touching those rings. So they try to come home, but what happens? Jadis grabs Polly's hair. So here they pull, they pull Jadis back to Edwardian England. They pull Jadis back to Uncle Andrew's study. Not going to be a good day in London. Not going to be a good day. But do keep in mind, because this can be this can feel a little dark. Narnia is going to be created out of all this. But yeah, it's not going to be a good day in London. It, it almost gets comical when you keep reading and you see um, what happens when Jadis comes to town. She comes to a world and a culture that's very different. She shows up in 1908 London. Well, so in chapter 6, and it's kind of a simple chapter, here she is. They, they reappear. They reappear in Andrew's study with Jadis. Um, Andrew becomes infatuated with Jadis. Again, they're two of a kind. She's much more advanced at evil than he is. Um, but, but he becomes infatuated with her. You know, she looks and she looks for the mark of the magician whatever that is, and she can tell that Andrew has it, but he's a weak magician. He doesn't have a lot of the noble blood. He, he, he's, he's, he's not a great magician like she is. So um, here's Andrew, who's just fascinated. Andrew feels differently around Jadis than Diggory or Polly feel around Jadis. Um, sometimes kindred spirits can recognize that spirit in each other. So... Um, the way the chapter ends is um, poor old Andrew thinks she thinks she can fall in love with him because he's infatuated with her. You know, it's just amazing how we can allow ourselves to think anything, no matter how ridiculous. We can rationalize ourselves to believe things that sound utterly ridiculous. So he thinks he can um, spruce up a little bit himself. And she'll fall in love with him. So he goes and he has a couple drinks. Gets his gets his um his ego and his strength up. Changes his clothes. I, I love the commentary on it. Look at the bomb page 82. You see, just imagine Uncle Andrew preening himself, thinking he can go back and make Jadis fall in love with him. She she pities him because he's a peon or a minion to her like everybody is. Look at the last paragraph on page 82. Children have one kind of silliness, as you know, and grown-ups have another kind. I assume you know that. We have a, our own kind of silliness as adults. And we don't call it silliness, but in the grand scheme of things, the universe would call it silliness. At this moment, Uncle Andrew was beginning to be silly in a very grown-up way. 
Now that the witch was no longer in the same room with him, he was quickly forgetting how she had frightened him and thinking more and more of her wonderful beauty. He kept saying to himself, a dim fine woman, sir, a dim fine woman, a superb preacher. He had also somehow managed to forget that it was the children who got hold of this superb creature. He felt as if he himself, by his magic, had called her out of an unknown, out of unknown worlds. Yeah, our arrogance can make us stupid, too. I assume you know that about human nature. Andrew, my boy, he's talking to himself. Andrew, my boy, he said to himself as he looked in the glass, you're a devilish, well-preserved fellow for your age. Yeah, he's deluding himself. A distinguished-looking man, sir. You see, and here's the narrator, which, of course, is C.S. Lewis. You see, the foolish old man was actually beginning to imagine the witch would fall in love with him. The two drinks probably had something to do with it. You know, when I see people, I'm not a teetotaler. You know, I may have a glass of wine twice a year. I'm not a teetotaler. Jesus turned water to wine. It was really wine. We use it, you know, it's the historic drink we use for communion. If you want to, I give you permission to call wine Bible juice. I mean, that's what it is. But I tell people who seem to be, the Bible is not against alcohol. The Bible is against drunkenness and intoxication and lack of moderation. I see a whole lot of people that I say, you can't afford the money you're spending on alcohol, and you sure can't afford to sacrifice any more brain cells uh, to alcohol. Um, anyway, here's Uncle Andrew. He's, he's had a couple drinks. The drinks probably or had something to do with it, and so so had his best clothes he's put on. But he was, in any case, as vain as a peacock. That was why he had become a magician. Yeah, I don't even hear people talking about how vanity is a sin anymore. Um, Thackeray wrote the book Vanity Fair in the middle of the 19th century. We used to say vanity is a sin, being vain is sinful. I don't think we know that, and we sure don't talk about that. But yeah, vanity is sinful. Um, again, you got Andrew and Jadis here who are above, you know, old-fashioned um, conventions. But you got Digger, these two kids who've just been taught right from wrong. You're going to see this throughout the book. They've just been taught right from wrong. They're smarter than Andrew and Jadis. They're smarter. Um, anyway, so there's Andrew. He goes downstairs. Now, again, Letty, the normal sister to Andrew, is doesn't know anything's going on upstairs. Doesn't know Jadis has come, come to London. He goes downstairs, and he wants to go out. He wants to get some money. Notice he has to borrow money from Letty, who doesn't want to give him any, because he, I'll tell you the rest of the story, he has squandered their resources on extravagant living. The brilliant Andrew, the magician, had squandered their living on extravagant living, their resource on extravagant. So Letty doesn't want to give them, um, give him anything. Um, and then, of course, you got to end with a cliffhanger. At that moment, the door was suddenly flung open. Aunt Letty looked around and saw with amazement 
that an enormous woman, splendidly dressed with bare arms and flashing eyes, stood in the doorway. It was the witch. Yeah, I'm sure she was amazed. She only thought Andrew was upstairs. Um, so chapter 7 is entitled, What Happened at the Front Door? It's going to get weird and strange and bizarre and funny when Jadis decides to enjoy life on the town in London. So anyway, a couple Bible verses, and you probably, particularly if you think about the bell, the hammer and the bell, you probably can almost imagine the two verses I want to look at. Uh, the two probably prototypical verses in the New Testament about temptation. We don't talk much about temptation anymore. I grew up in a church where we, we sang the old hymn, Yield Not to Temptation, for Yielding is Sin. Um, each victory, victory will help you some other to win. Yeah, we don't talk much about temptation now. We just give in to temptation and we're, we're, we, we, we're happy about it. But anyway, the Bible does have a couple of things to say about temptation. Go, for, go first to James. Uh, James in the New Testament, that little book on practical Christian living. Uh, it's not surprising he's going to give us some wisdom about temptation. Look at James chapter 1. Um, let's start at verse 12. Again, James is the half-brother of Jesus. James was the head of the church in Jerusalem. This is his letter written to the early Christian community, probably still in Jerusalem. So James chapter 1, I'll begin at verse 12. James says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been proved, he will receive a crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, and if your translation says tested there, it should be, we all know this, the word tempted. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does God, he himself, tempt anyone. But each one is tempted. Here's the progression. Here's what gets you to charn. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, and by the way, you can translate the word desire there as lust. When lust or desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth charn, death. So there's the progression. Uh, let me give you another verse, and this will give me a good opportunity to tell you what verse is absolutely not in the Bible anywhere. And you probably quote it as if it is. It is not in the Bible anywhere. There's no verse that says it, and there's no theology that would support it to say God never gives you more than you can handle. Please tell me you know that's not in the Bible, right? Shake your head, yes, that is not in the Bible for a lot of reasons. I'm going to show you the verse where it sort of comes from, but it is not in the Bible. One, if you say that, there's a couple problems with it, besides the fact it's not in the Bible. There's a couple problems with it. God doesn't give you everything you receive. And maybe the devil giving it to you. So some of the stuff that you're being called to deal with, remember James you just read, it, it doesn't come from God. Some of the stuff you're dealing with has been left at your doorstep by the enemy. 
So some of the times when you say God doesn't give you anything that uh, that you can't bear, you can't handle. God never give you anything more than you can handle. Well, one, you're making an implication that kind of everything that shows up in your life is from God. Cogitate on that one a while. And then um, it's just not there. The verse that gets twisted to that, and I'd rather you see, this won't surprise you, I'd rather you see what the Bible says. Is this true? I was listening to an old black gospel song today. And the old black gospel song says, the Bible is right and someone is wrong. Our culture can't even accept that. You know, but anyway, yeah, get rid of that other verse that your grandma told you is in the Bible that's not there. And let me show you where it sort of originated, and you'll see the difference. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, well, again, let's read it, verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. While you're looking that up, that gave me a good opportunity to finish drinking my expensive coffee. Um, look at chapter 10, 1 Corinthians, verse 12. Again, temptation's the topic. Temptation is the topic. Not testing, not life in general. Temptation is the topic. Read what's in front of you. I think I've told you before when I was teaching undergraduates New Testament, I, I taught for a couple of years before I realized the main thing I had to do is teach those kids to read. See what's on the Bible, see what's on the page, and not what they think is supposed to be there. Look what's on the page. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, Paul says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I think Paul was writing to the Andrews and the Jadises in the world. Now, here's the verse that gets morphed into God never gives you more than you can handle. Okay, hold that over here. And look at what the Bible really says. Verse 13, no temptation, temptation, not testing, no temptation has overtaken you except that, except such as is common to, to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able it doesn't say God will not give you anything you can't handle. The Bible says he will not tempt you beyond what you can handle. There's a difference there. Please know there's a difference there. And he's going to tell you how you handle. The reason he can say God will, there will be no temptation given you that you cannot handle. He's going to tell you why. Keep reading. Um, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted, not tested, tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So what the Bible actually says is when you are faced with temptation, God will always give you a way out. God will not let you be trapped. God will not let you be put in a situation where you have no choice. So what is being what the verse says is not God. You'll never get anything you can't handle. God will never give you anything you can't handle. There are things you. By the way, you do know there are things you can't handle, right? Okay, that's why you need God. You need grace. You need the church. You need the Holy Spirit. There are things you cannot handle. Uh, we can handle it together, um, but that's not what's the topic here. The topic here is temptation. God will not 
allow you to be tempted by evil, tempted to sin, without there being an exit strategy. Now, again, the way you kind of give up your exit strategy is when you say something like, well, the devil made me do it. Or, well, that's just who I am. Get over it. Or, that's the way I roll. That's a new one I'm hearing. That's just the way I roll. Or, you know not to push my buttons. As if you're not in charge of your buttons. Um, yeah, quit giving your responsibility away to everyone else. God will not allow you to be tempted in such a way that there's not going to be a possibility of escape. Yeah, that's why we used to sing, yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Being tempted is not sin. Yielding is sin. We don't like to sing that because we like to think there's no escape. You know, when the, when the chocolate cake is in front of me, I have no choice. So don't, you know, you know, instead of seeing the piece of chocolate cake, I mean, I hear the strains of yield not to temptation in the back of my mind because I grew up in that kind of church. You know, I mean, anyway, you got a picture. Don't be like Andrew or Jadis. It may, you may not want to ring that bell because you can never unring the bell when you ring it. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this faithful group of folks who will come out early on a Wednesday morning to go deeper with you, to go deeper in their Christian faith, to learn what, what your word says, to learn how you can form us in a way more powerful, more substantial than the world around us will form us. God, allow us to not be conformed to this present age, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that our lives can be a living sacrifice to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.